out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life, as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should. Always playing the finest in indie pop and beyond. This week, special guest is going to be, indeed, is going to be the turn of the 10,000 Maniacs, because I spoke to the founding member, Steve, or Stephen Gustafson. So, I've got that interview that I'll break up as I usually do in about three or four easy-to-digest little segments alongside the usual award-worthy playlist. But to get the party rolling, I think I should play your favourite of mine. This is um, Scorpio Rising. I know. Check me out. <laughs>
Excitable stuff. There you go. That is uh, what youth is all about. Um, that is the 10,000 Maniacs and the track titled Scorpio Rising that came from their 1985 album, The Wishing Chair, that was produced by the one and the only Joe Boyd. He of Pink Floyd, early Pink Floyd, um, the incredible string band, and obviously Nick Drake. I'm not sure why I said obviously. It's not obvious at all. But anyway, that was what he had been doing in the 60s and 70s and then went on to produce such people as the 10,000 Maniacs. Anyway, that's just details. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. Welcome once again. Um, yes, this week's special guest is going to be the founding member of the band, or one of them, I guess. Um, that is Steve or Stephen Gustafson, um, who I spoke to a couple of weeks ago, all the way from Jamestown, New York City, on the East Coast. I know. We spare no expense here on the show. But anyway, before we have the first part of the interview, we'll just do some admin. If you want to contact me, you we always love your uh, messages. <laughs> we really do. Um, you can via Twitter or Facebook. Just go to at C86show. And as I always say, and I like to repeat myself, especially with age, um, it uh, makes me feel important. You can um, hear any of the back catalogue, the archive, which I've done. Um, it's on Spotify, iTunes, Mixcloud and Podbean. It's all there, two and a half years worth of indie chat, what not to like. Anyway, before we have the first part of the interview, I think we should play another track by the band because we love them so much. This is Hey Jack. <laughs>
Well, it changed my life. That was uh, the 10,000 Maniacs and a track titled Hey Jack Kerouac. And that came from their 1987 album titled In My Tribe, which I remember buying on vinyl, obviously three decades ago. Um, 87, probably the best year for music ever. But anyway, that's just my opinion. And who cares about that? This is David Esau. This is the C86 show. And this is going to be the first part of my interview with Steve from the band, as I've been talking, as I do a lot about life, love, poetry and all that sort of stuff. And also about when I first um, discovered the band, well, for myself anyway. And it was on, um, it was John Peel, obviously, um, when he, on a Friday night they had a program called The Tube, which um, John Peel said if he could pick any band, <laughs> he would pick up, pick this band to play. And there they were. And I'd mentioned this to Steve and this was his response. Steve? Tell us how you, um, what you remember of that amazing moment when you suddenly became big in the UK. Take it away. Um, I've got goosebumps just thinking about it. Um, we, we were very fortunate uh, that, that uh, we had, we were, we weren't afraid to try anything. And when we made our record um, in my tribe, which was an independent project recorded at, at a local university. Uh, I'm sorry. I mean, our um Secrets of the I Ching. Um, uh, we made a list of, uh, of uh, uh, rock writers and influential people and DJs that we knew. We made a list, and John Peel was one of them. So we got his address. We sent him the record. Uh, he played My Mother the War. Um, he sent us a very nice note um, that said uh, how, how much he loved the record. And um, uh, it, it was voted in the uh, in 83. It was voted uh, by the listeners 23 of the top 50 nifty 50, I think. And basically on the strength of that. Um, and, and we didn't have a, uh, I don't believe we had a record. Con yes, we had just signed our record contract with Electra. And they said we, we said we'd love to go make our first record uh, over in the UK. And they uh, they kind of said, all right, if you must. Uh, and we worked with um, we were going to make the record with um, uh, uh, Boyd. Um, God, my memory's shot. Oh, right now. is that Joe right. Boyd? Joe Boyd. Yep. And who was an American living in, in London. And we uh, we got to our house, a rented house in Muswell Hill. And the next day we had to hop on the train. And uh, go to Glasgow, I think, is where the tube is recorded, correct? Or was it Edinburgh? It was Newcastle. Oh, Newcastle. That's right. Okay. And um, uh, it, was, it was the most surreal experience because we'd never done anything like it. And uh, um, there was, on, this, on the stage next to us was Squeeze, one of, one of our favorite bands. And, of course, Van Morrison played in that, on that episode as well. And uh, we were, we lived at, they put us up in this nice resort and uh, fed us like kings and uh, our knees were knocking. I was, so, I was so afraid um, my knees were knocking and um, uh, the, the audience sort of just looked at us and in, in, with this in dismay, like what, what's going on here? Uh, because we were so sort of unusual, I think. Uh, but um, well, we thought it was terrific, and uh, we took the train back to London. And when we got out at uh, at the station, we were walking down the street to go uh, 
to catch a cab and to get to back to our house. And a young woman walked by and she said, you're 10,000 maniacs. I saw you on the tube last night. And uh, it was really a moment of sort of becoming, I guess, or, you know, we knew that we belonged because someone recognized us. Well, absolutely. And it was interesting because obviously the obvious person was dear old Jimi Hendrix had to sort of didn't make it in America, came to the UK. We loved him and then gave him back to you because because going back to that production and and Joe Boyd, obviously he'd worked with people like Pink Floyd and um, the Incredible String Band and also um, the incredible Nick Drake as well. So obviously he must have been somebody that was fantastic to work with, who would have probably got you quite early on. I think that uh, you're, you're right there. Um, he was on our list uh, because of all those bands you mentioned that we were fans of. And um, uh, he'd also, right before uh, we recorded um, The Wishing Chair, he had just done a record with um, R.E.M. And we sort of feel like they maybe stole our idea. But um, Joe came, flew to the United States, came to our little, uh, our corner of the world in western New York State in Jamestown, New York, and lived in our, our little rehearsal studio with us for two weeks, and uh, we ran over all the songs. And, you know, we were, uh, uh, we were raw and green behind the ears and really, uh, but weren't afraid. And uh, he, just, he just had us relax and keep writing. And when you, when you come to the UK, uh, you know, have as many songs as you have ready. Um, and when we got in the studio, he spent a lot of his time on his back on the couch, just listening to takes. And he'd say, I like that one, but do it again. And uh, so we would do a dozen takes or more and then go back and listen. He'd say, I like that. We do a few tweaks. He was so easy to work with and such a delightful man. Um, it, it was, uh, and it was a thrill hearing his stories of, uh, the early Pink Floyd and, uh, yes. working with those bands, you know, it was delightful. Yes. Cause I've done a few interviews with him and he is always so engaged and he talks about the UFO club that they had in London as well. I think that was probably 1967 and the, the incredible 14 hour Technicolor dream at the Ali Pali, which was obviously the height of the hippie movement, but Going back to the band, I mean, the, the, the interesting thing is, because I put indie pop down in the years of sort of 1983 to 87, which is basically the years of the Smiths, and it encompassed a certain cultural zeitgeist, and you you sort of came of age during that time. So your timing in the UK and probably in the UK, USA was absolutely perfect. Um, yeah, we had nothing to do with it. <laughs> it, it was just, uh, it was dumb luck. Uh, I mean, our whole career beginning was, uh, we worked hard, but, uh, you know, we seemed to be in the right place at the right time and the right things were happening around us. Uh, college radio in the, in the United States helped us. Uh, and of course, MTV started basically the same year we did, although we, it was, took us a while to embrace videos and, and uh, sort of get the hang of it. Um, uh, but it was it, just all a bunch of dumb luck, and we and we were fortunate enough to write songs that people 
like to listen to. Yes. And did you and did it take a while to get your sound? Because I know that obviously the first album, you know, and a bit like the Smiths first album, you probably thought, okay, that was great. But we, you know, we've got things to work on because the second album I thought was fantastic. You got, you know, Can't Ignore the Train, but also my favourite song, which is Scorpio Rising. And you had a, you know, it's got an amazing vibe to that song. So did you start to sort of feel that you would begin to click as a unit? Oh uh, yeah, I, I think so. Um, you, you know, any band I think will really can can hear their uh, abilities once you record stuff and listen back, because up to that point, up to that point, we'd never really had that opportunity. Uh, I mean, we did stuff in at the university, but it was pretty basic recording stuff. But when you get a chance in a real studio to solo your tracks. And listen to them and and uh, and critique them. Uh, it, it really forces you to get better. And um, uh, you know that's what we did when we signed with uh, Electra Records. Uh, we they gave us a few thousand dollars, and we immediately we rented a studio space and just worked and worked and worked, practiced and playing scales and and uh, uh, you know all those things and that that helped us get better because. It was going to be, uh, you know, it was going to be a big challenge for us, and we were, um, uh, we wanted to be prepared. Yes, because because I suppose what was quite interesting, looking back to what it was like then, because you had certain, especially in this country, you had certain gatekeepers, and John Peel was one that, you know, play on the John Peel show got you a big audience, or a, a, certainly a good audience straight away. And then you had the music papers. We had like the NME, Melody Maker Sounds, all with circulations of probably 100,000 copies almost each. So again, a couple of mentions there. And you, you certainly, yeah, you got yourself an audience. But then, you know, by 1987, which I still put down as one of the great years of music, if you look at the album releases in 1987, it's quite unbelievable and phenomenal. You just wonder, you know, how anybody any, got any work done because there was just great records released every week so that's the one that elevated you into sort of another another world didn't it with um in my in in my tribe um it did and uh, while um the wishing chair uh didn't uh, um it, it we got a lot of press out of it i think because we were sort of um we were quite unique um, uh, not everyone liked, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the British press sort of, I think had a bit of a piss on us a few times and, uh, um, but that was okay because they mentioned their name and, um, uh, uh like I said, in the States when, um, uh, the, well, our, our record company said, you know, you didn't recoup, we get to pick your next producer. We want you to work with Peter Asher. And he has the, the golden touch. And uh, and we basically couldn't argue. And so we flew to Los Angeles to work in Peter's backyard out in uh, L.A. And he got George Massenberg to engineer it, who was just a genius. And it was the beginning of, um, it was when MIDI was just coming out. And computers were just start being used. And they wanted to take this raw band. Because they were used to working with studio musicians who could play anything. And, of course, we couldn't. Uh, we could play what we wrote, and that was about it. And uh, um, we were a bit of an experiment for them. And Peter insisted on playing in time and in tune, and he really worked us hard uh, to become a better band. Um, and uh, we spent hours, uh, wasted hours, some, we think a little bit, trying to get this MIDI thing to work and sequence tracks 
which some of the tracks on um, in my tribe are the sequence drums and like the weather, uh, a few other songs that I can't recall. Um, uh, and while we didn't like some of it, it certainly helped our career. Yeah. And uh, and and that was, and it, that record actually went gold um, seven years after we started. And that's the first part of my interview with Steve Gustafson, talking about life, those early years of being in a band, and that interesting world that is the recording process and producers and all that sort of groovy stuff that we love. Anyway, this is David Eastall. This is this C86 show. I think we're going to play some music before any more quality chat. This is taken from their fifth studio album titled In Time, Our Time in Eden. This is These Are Days. When May is rushing 
There you go. The 10,000 Maniacs with a track titled These Days. That's taken from their album Our Time in Eden. Hello, this is David Eastall and uh, this is the C86 show. And this week's special guest is going to be, or is, Steve Gustafson, um, who I spoke to a couple of weeks ago, all the way from Jamestown, New York City, because we like to just throw out the budget and just spend, spend, spend. You know, we'll track down anybody for this show. Anyway, this is going to be the second part of my interview with Steve, where I was talking about life, love, poetry, and also about the uh, making of the track, Hey Jack Kerouac, because, um, frankly, Mr Shankly, it did change my life. Anyway, this was Steve's response. Steve, can you remember the recording process? Yeah, it did. It was never released as a single. Um, uh... You know, when 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 we wrote songs, uh, it was always the music first. The boys would uh, have a collection of chords and we'd arrange them into a, a, a bit of a structure and start uh, playing it. And uh, Natalie would sit in the corner of the studio with her composition books and um, and just write and write and write lyrics. And we wouldn't know what really any of the lyrics were she'd sing some in our in our rehearsal studio but the the quality of our equipment was so bad it was hard to understand what she was saying and she didn't really share with us what she was writing about it was very personal to her so we didn't know really what some of the songs were about until we were in the studio recording them for the album um uh you know and the the Kerouac was a was basically a rob buck um, composition done on an open tune, an F sharp uh, tuning on his guitar, and uh, and Rob was a, he was a very big fan of Kerouac, and uh, I think that was sort of maybe some of Natalie's inspiration about that song, um, where where that came from. Yes, because because the other thing that I sort of remember as I'm sort of speaking to you that during that period we were sort of not only just there was an awful lot of indie bands, but there was also that kind of rise in a lot of those singer songwriters like Tracy Chapman, Michelle Schacht, and also Suzanne Vega, who did that song Luca. And I remember your opening track on that album obviously has got one of those kind of what the, what's the matter here. So there was a lot of kind of uh, political and social kind of. Um, awareness going on, wasn't there? Because in this country we had Red Wedge and obviously you had Reaganomics and a lot of kind of movement towards the alternative and the left. So did you also feel kind of pulled into quite a political kind of arena as well? Because at that time I was just thinking, you, you know, often bands had to sort of sort of put their flag on what sort of side they were on. And I just wondered how, how that affected you as well. Uh, it was really quite exciting. Um, to be on a side and be in a band and to be, uh, uh, you know, minstrels traveling around um, trying to convince a crowd each night that, you know, we were worth the listen and that maybe it was some of the topics of the song were worth um, thinking about. Um, we, we, you know, we, we tried to stay away from the term political and really leaned on social. And we, our issues weren't political issues, they were social issues. And uh, if, you know, certainly politics could fix those or harm them um, even more. Uh, I mean, it was, Natalie and her lyrics was really the, uh, the uh, you know, the spark for us. And, and we got fully behind them. And um, uh, um, what it, it, it was, uh, go ahead. 
I was going to say, a bit like um, dear old Morrissey in The Smiths when we first saw him, Natalie was also an amazing front singer, wasn't she? She had a, a quality which kind of, I remember watching her, you know, especially the tube and various other bits and pieces that we managed to catch during the 80s, and she was very captivating. So when she started her little dance and, and moves, you must have thought, oh, this we've got somebody pretty special here. Her, um, the first... <coughs> When, when we formed the band um, in 81, uh, we really didn't know how to play, but it was really most to, to just to hang about and uh, have some drinks and smoke some pot and um, uh, dream about being rock stars. And um, we were running a college, Dennis Drew and I were running a college radio station at the time. And Natalie was a 16 year old student at the, uh, at the university, at the college. And uh, she'd listen to our radio station because we played reggae music and we like we played the Gang of Four and we played Talking Heads and she loved you know and Brian Ferry and she stopped by the station one day and said, you know, would you play some of my records? And we invited her in and then we said, hey, you know, we've got this band. We didn't know if she could sing. We didn't know any you know any talent she might have. And we invited her down to our uh, warehouse re uh, rehearsal space and she hung out. Her mother would come down and drag her home and say, stay away from those boys. They're bad <laughs> news. They're bad news. You're going to get into drugs and orgies. Um, I mean, certainly there were drugs, but um, uh, and and she would uh, she would just, you know, come down for a while and just suddenly disappear and come down for another rehearsal and scream into the microphone some things, some nonsense and spin around the room. And we just sort of thought of her as a bit of an oddball. Um and then our first performance, we played, we had a band called Still Life that, that was a, the few months leading up to 10,000 Maniacs that was without John Lombardo. And the first uh, gig we played at a small club in Erie, Pennsylvania, um, uh, most of us were so afraid we had our backs to the audience. You know, it was very, it was, it was scary. And um, uh, Natalie screamed into the microphone and, Twirled around. There may be only 50 people in the audience in this bar. And after our show, we got paid our $50 and we sat and watched the other two bands and got into an argument with the owner. And the owner uh, threw us out, chased us out the, the back door with a with a nightstick, uh, Billy Club. And uh, as as we were, you know, we threw our gear into our cars and we were driving down the street. And I smashed my car into a into a marble bench and. Uh, you know, we pulled away in a hurry and we thought we were headed for the big time because we got thrown out of our first show. And we knew we had something very unique in uh, Natalie Merchant then. And, you know, her persona grew and her, the whole whirling dervish thing that she did and, um, you know, her her demands on the audience. And, uh, you know, we just knew we had to back her completely. And that's also why we pushed her to be in the videos and uh, you know, use your picture because you're the voice. Yes. Well, it was quite yeah. a lot of, during that time, and I suppose in the UK, I don't know if you were aware of it, you were, but there were bands like the Flatmates and there was also the Darling Buds and the Primitives who were all sort of coming along with sort of, I suppose, women uh, sort of fronting the bands. And you had, ba before that, you had people like the Marine Girls and everything but the girls. So there was an awful lot of uh, kind of a, a shift in that kind of gender. The, the, I suppose the alternative indie world did allow a lot more sort of, I suppose, kind of quirkiness to happen, which didn't happen in the 
the punk world because that was kind of quite a macho thing. So it was it was kind of you know your timing was perfect, and having Natalie at the front was absolutely stunning, really. Yeah, dumb luck, you know. Just we were in the right place at the right time with the right um, with the right wave of music that was going on, and uh, I, you know, we really thought because of our radio station, we we discovered bands like the Gang of Four. Uh, in you know, in uh, entertainment when it came out in 19, what is it, 79 or uh, 78, whatever that was. And, and the, you know, we got Clash Records, which we wouldn't have heard in our town. We wouldn't have, we would have read about them in Rolling Stone magazine, but we, would, we wouldn't have heard them on the radio. Uh, it was impossible. Uh, but we were lucky to get these, get these albums to the station that really sort of gave us hope. Um, I, I, my, I saw the Gang of Four play in Buffalo, New York, um, in a tiny club. Um, it must have been 78, maybe 79. I've talked with Hugo Burnham about this, right? And we can't remember the date specifically. But I knew then that I wanted to be in a band. That, that, made, that convinced it that that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. Wise choice, and we've all been very grateful ever since. Anyway, that's the second part of my interview with Steve from the 10,000 Maniacs. I've still got quite a bit more of that, but I thought we should break it up with some more music. This is taken from their MTV special, and this is um, Because the Night, written by the one and only Bruce Springsteen and Patti Smith. We love a bit of Bruce here. Anyway, take it away. Desire is hunger, is the fire I breathe. Love is a banquet on which we feed.
Yes, and the crowd went wild. That is the 10,000 Maniacs as a track titled, um, as, if, as if I need to tell you, because the night that was taken from their 1993 album, TV, MTV Unplugged. Yes, thank you. The round of applause is um, overwhelming. Anyway, this is going to be the third part of my interview with Steve from the band as we were talking about the time. Yes, I had mentioned that I'd seen them live at the UEA sometime in the 1980s, I think. I should find out, actually. But anyway, and I'd been asking him whether he'd sort of remembered much about that tour and any other such uh, undertakings in this uh, country and beyond. And this was his answer. Steve, take it away. Uh, yeah, we never quite made it to the bigger arenas, but uh, that was, a, that was an, a delightful tour. We had, uh, we had a lot of fun. It was, yes. it was great. It was great. So one thing that I've noticed doing this show, because, you know, there's two things. There's like most bands have a five-year narrative of getting together. They do the first album. That normally goes well. The second album, a bit tricky. Then then they break up for various reasons. This is mostly with UK bands. And there's often, you know, problems with the band and also the lack of money. But... Um, then the other thing that really gets them is kind of the change in a kind of the, the music landscape. And in the 80s, you had that alternative scene. I know you had the sort of Trevor Horn and the mainstream charts, but you had the alternative scene. And what knocked a lot of those bands out was the dance scene that came along, you know, with all the baggy stuff from the Happy Monday, Soup Dragons, Primal Scream. And so a lot of those jingly jangly bands just said, oh, you know, we're not going to fit in here. But you managed to keep plugging away right through the decade into the next ones because... Blind Man Zoo, which came out at the end of the decade, and obviously you also had grunge coming along, was a much more, it was, a, it was an amazingly polished and sensitive album, wasn't it? Um, well, we worked with Peter Asher again, but we made him get out of L.A., and he came to, uh, to New York State. We worked in Woodstock uh, at a studio there. Um, I think it was, it was a little more focused. Uh, I think we were better musicians. Um, uh, we were a little more determined to uh, uh, to try to follow what I guess was considered a uh, uh, a success within my tribe. Um, uh, you know, the record company record companies in the states then still had they were still selling a lot of records, and they, there was still a lot of money pouring in. They had they had loads of cash, and they were willing to spend it and um, especially on someone who on an album or on a band that had had a successful album. Um, uh, you know, we were just, uh, it was just the, here's our, you know, we got to go in the studio. We need 30 songs. Let's write them. Uh, you know, whittle that down to 20. And we wandered in with about 15 and let Asher, you know, sort of thumb through it and see what he liked. Um, uh, it was, it was a really great experience because it was in a little church and it was very, we were sort of in a cocoon and uh, uh, we got to really focus on what we were doing yes. uh, out, out in the middle of the woods in, in Woodstock, New York. You know, there was nowhere to go. All you could, you know, we, we lived right around the corner in flats out in the woods. Um, it, it was uh, it was a good experience for us. But it was interesting because a lot of the tracks on that album, like Eat for Two, Please Forgive Me, you know, Trouble Me, um, Headstrong, you know, uh, Poison in the World, Dust Bowl. I mean, they're, all, they're, they're very serious. I mean, you become serious artists now with serious subject matter because it, it's kind of like a lot of the people in the UK and probably in the USA, you know, it was like party on, whereas this album came along and it, it again was a kind of a, a 
big kind of statement towards a cultural and social kind of um, awareness. I mean, although a lot of those topics were were very serious, weren't they? Um, I, that's we, you know, our music was very t- sort of considered toe tapping. It was uh, it sort of effervescent and bubbly with Buck's uh, jangly guitar stuff and a, and, a, and a good solid rhythm from from Augustiniak and the drums, and then serious lyrics and the uh, I suppose the the juxtaposition between the two uh, people found quite interesting. Yes, um, you know you sing about teenage present pregnancy, you know, and dance around the room while you're <laughs> while you're singing about it. Yes. Uh, and you know, and apologizing for you know for you know it. Uh, that's that was Natalie, and she was very serious. And um, uh, you know, we, and we were serious about being musicians, and serious about our what we wanted to have, and we wanted you know, loud snare drum and uh, and get up off your uh, you know ass and dance kind of stuff. And so, and that was, I think, a bit always a constant struggle in the studio with her trying to tone us down and us trying to, you know, lift her up a little more. Um, and I, th- I think it made for some interesting music. Yes. And then as we turn the next decade, um, you, you, your sort of fifth album, Our, um, Our Time in Eden, you sort of, by then you realised that Natalie was going to be leaving. And, and also with that particular album, there was two, another two of my favourite tracks, These Are these are Days and also Eden. I mean, did that feel a bit strange when she announced that she was going to be leaving the band? Was that during the recording of that particular album? No, David, she, uh, Natalie told us she was leaving the band about, you know, every other month starting from the very beginning. Uh, um, and we just sort of expected it to happen someday. And I guess we were, uh, you know, we're grateful we had her for 13 years. Um, uh, she told us uh, before we started writing the songs for our time in Eden, while we were, when we got off the road after, um, we did a brief, a, little, a bit in, um, in 1991, uh, we, the record company, we, we needed to take time off. And the record company wanted to keep the name out, so they re-released our first two independent records, um, uh, Human Conflict Number no. 5 and Secrets of the I Ching, and packaged them in a, a thing called Hope Chest. And we did a short tour with John Lombardo, because John Lombardo left the band, but we did a short tour with John and his duo partner, Mary Ramsey. And um, uh, so then we took a little more time off, and then we, we were going to get ready to start writing songs. And she sat us down and said, this is the last studio album I'm going to do with you guys. Thanks for everything. And I think um, I think it sort of, it, it took a lot of pressure off. I, I, me personally, I, that was the most fun I'd had in the studio working. Um, I, and I think it was, you know, because of, it was because of that. Um, it was more of a, it was a final celebration. And I, I believe that's why she may have titled it Our Time in Eden. Right. Um, you know, here we are, here we were, this is what we did. And, uh, and we still play. The, the, the song Eden is in our set list every night. It's one of our favorites to play. 
Yes, well, I think it's a, yeah. an absolutely beautiful song. So obviously yeah. you dealt with that much better than a lot of people who would have probably gone, oh, my God, this is horrendous. We can't talk to each other and fall out. But you obviously looked at the positives that you'd had 13 years together. So when that album had come out and then you did that fantastic MTV Unplugged album, which used to be so popular, the MTV Unplugged series, um, what happened then? Because then there was this a void at the mic. I mean, did you, was there ever a point or period that you thought, oh, this is going to be the end of the band? Or did you think, mm, I can't imagine what life would be like without music? Well, um, you know, uh, after, um, after the MTV uh, was released, uh, the the president of Electra sat us down in his offices and said, you know, um, we're signing Natalie to, uh, you know, to a solo record deal. If you guys come up with some good songs, send them to me. I'll have a listen. Thanks a lot. See you later. Uh, so we knew that uh, we had no hope with signing with Electra. Um, so, uh, and it was our last show with, uh, with Natalie was, uh, in August of 93, we did a big radio show in, at Madison Square Garden with a bunch of bands. And um, my, my wife, later that month, gave birth to our first child. And um, I didn't care about anything but her and that child. And I, was, I, was, I had designed and I was building a house, uh, which I still live in and I'm at right now, out in the woods in the upstate New York or western New York State. And... Uh, I, I didn't think about any music for almost a whole, you know, almost a whole year while I was building that house. Um, and it was great. I loved it. It was such a, um, uh, such a release. And then uh, we, were, uh, we were having drinks one night in town with uh, Dennis and I and Rob and um, John Lombardo uh, walked in and we started talking and uh, he said, boys, you know, Mary and I have some songs. Maybe we should uh, we should record them and see what they sound like. And uh, we'd been, Dennis and uh, Jerry and uh, Rob and I had, had been fooling around with a few songs and uh, occasionally. So we got together and recorded and felt like uh, it was it was something that would work for us. It felt very natural uh, with Mary singing because we'd worked with her in the studio. She played uh, viola for us. She, she traveled with us. She sang on the Unplugged thing. She did harmonies and played viola on the Unplugged record. So it was a very natural, I think, uh, transition for us. Yes. And so we just started, we just started writing songs to, to see what happens. We were going to release our own record. Um, we, had, well, we had about 20 song ideas that we were rehearsing on um, with no record company. Uh, and so we started to play some gigs. Our first gig, we called ourselves uh, Rob, Dennis, John and Mary, Rob, Dennis, Steve and Jerry. We played a few, a few shows like that and then decided, oh, what the heck? We got the name in the divorce. Let's use it. Um, <laughs> so we did. Yes, which must have been quite nice. But then... You had another, you know, because obviously Peter Buck, who'd been such a part of the band. Um, yes. he Did he ever come back into the band again? Or did um, was he always kind of on the outside? Who, Rob, you mean? Yeah, sorry, Rob. Oh, no, he was always, he was always in the band. Um, although he did... He did go AWOL right before he died. He, he was uh, living in Texas and uh, writing songs with a group of people who uh, really used and abused him and 
and uh, spent all his money for him. And he ended up hocking his guitars and he was he got into some serious drugs and alcohol use. And um, uh, we we had we'd signed a, while we were writing the songs after Natalie left, we got a, uh, a call from Geffen Records and um, an A&R rep came to Jamestown to meet with us and said, let me, you know, let me hear what you're doing. So we, we played him some tracks and he really liked it. And he said, I think I can give you guys, you guys a contract. And we said, why not? And so we actually went to Athens, Georgia, uh, Rob, Dennis, Jerry, myself, John Lombardo and Mary Ramsey. We went to Athens, Georgia, recorded um, Love Among the Ruins uh, down there in Athens. And um, it was, you know, the record industry was just starting to fall apart um, from uh, uh, file sharing. Those, they, you know, those, they had, those guys, they had their hands in the cookie jars and their pants down. And uh, the internet and file sharing came along and just sideswiped them. And yes. uh, they weren't prepared. So Geffen, uh, as soon as they signed us, as soon as we had that record released, we, hey, we did the first single, that Roxy Music thing, and we were ready to do a second single. They said, sorry, we're, we're cutting the roster. So we were, you know, we were kind of abandoned as soon as, they, as soon as they signed us. Yes, I think it was all gangster rap and Marilyn Manson at that time, wasn't it, really? I <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> I think that was the only thing that was going to be selling in, in any great quantity. So when, I mean, obviously, um, yes, God, when you have a death, Rob Buck dying must have been not such a shock because you obviously realised he was in a bit of a state. But did did you sort of then get a kind of lineup that felt a little bit more, yeah, kind of stable and a bit more like, okay, this is a gang, we're back together. Uh, yeah, you're right there, David. Um, we we uh, we had an intervention with Rob. Um, we actually, uh, you know, he missed gigs. Uh, we had you know we had a fella fill in for a few gigs which really felt horrible um uh but we you know uh i mean we were signed kind of in a state where we needed to work and we needed to have income and he just couldn't keep it together and it was it was terribly sad and uh we felt really lost and we felt um at we felt it was our fault and um, I think some of us really beat ourselves up about that. I still do. Um, uh, we thought that was really going to sort of be the end of the band. And uh, Rob's guitar tech, who was a local, a man of uh, maybe 10 or 15 years younger than us, uh, a delightful boy who uh, had his own band and uh, who, who we would go see locally and... Uh, we got invited to play a, a benefit show for um, Reuben Carter, uh, the fighter, up in Toronto, Canada, which is, you know, only a couple hours away from us. And we asked Jeff, because we didn't have any gigs, we didn't have an agent, we really didn't have a manager. Um, uh, so we thought, oh, what the heck, it'll be fun, let's go do it. And we said, Jeff, come on, you got to play. He knew Rob's, all of Rob's open tunings on his guitars. He knew most of the fingerings the special things that Rob did. Uh, he's, he played like Rob. Uh, and and uh, so we had a few rehearsals and uh, went and played that show. And it went quite, quite well, except for all, you know, the shenanigans afterwards. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, because we thought we, it was just, we we're going to play that and that was going to be it. 
and then our uh, a, a friend who had done some manage, road managing for us before said, you know what, there's a couple of gigs I can get you, you want to do it? And we said, okay. And this was in uh, probably 2003 um, and, and or thereabouts. And we did those and they were fun and uh, the crowd seemed to like it. Um, you know, so we sort of every year we added, we seem to be adding a few more shows and a few more shows. And last year we did 50, 50 shows. We were in South America. Um, you know, we've released with Jeff Erickson on guitar. We've released three or four records since. Indeed, the interesting and sometimes excitable and murky world that is being in rock and roll. But anyway, that's the third part of my interview with Steve Gustafson, talking about life in the band and life post Natalie Merchant. Anyway, I think we'll have some more music before the last bit of the chat. This is going to be Don't Talk.
There is absolutely nothing wrong with that track. It's pop perfection, he says. Anyway, I just always thought it had an expansiveness that you occasionally get in a song, and uh, they absolutely nailed it there. That was the 10,000 Maniacs with a track called Don't Talk. This is David Esau. This is the C86 show, and this is going to be the last part of my interview with Steve, where I'd been talking about that transition period between losing your front person, in, in this case Natalie Merchant, and then sort of spending quite a bit of time in the wilderness, groping in the dark for the black cat that isn't there, before deciding to play music again, and whether that transition period could have been a bit shorter. And this was Steve's answer. Steve, what is your answer to that fascinating Oh, yes, made? it could have, and we could have handled it a lot better, but uh, we tend to sort of ignore media and... Um, uh, we aren't really good at, at staying on top of it. Um, you know, we still get, you, you'd be amazed, David. We play shows, uh, last year, we played a show in a, in a club. And after the show, a woman came up to me and she said, I had no idea Natalie played the violin. <laughs> and I said, and I said, she doesn't. And she said, well, yes, yeah, she does. And I said, no, nah, I'm sorry, but she doesn't. And she said, well, yeah, she just played violin. I said, no, she didn't. And she looked at me like I had, you know, two heads. And she said, yeah, that was, she just, that was Natalie. I said, no, that was Mary Ramsey. And she didn't believe me. It's, it's, and we still, and we, and, you know, we get beat up on social media quite a bit. You know, you, you guys are no good. You know, you're nothing without Natalie, uh, you know. 9,999 9, maniacs. Why did you keep the name? You know, you should have quit. We get it beat up a lot. And I fight back, uh, usually with, with uh, curse words. <laughs> you know, give them a good up yours. And um, come see us. I'll put you on a guest list. Stuff like that to try to convince them. Yes. Well, it's kind of strange because I, I kind of can see back decades ago when you know, one is a bit precious. But now you see so many bands who are just saying, well, if we're still alive, you know, and and, you know, a few members have gone, even if they if they were Freddie Mercury or Roger Waters, it doesn't completely matter. I mean, as long as one's got the spirit of the music, that's a bit of a different thing. I mean, obviously, if it's David Bowie, then that's David Bowie, isn't it? It's not like a band, is it, really? So um, it's kind of interesting. But obviously, you've had to deal, you know, the one thing that you've also had to deal with was the amount of people coming and going, because obviously John Lobardo has been in and out of the band a lot. So how do you just sort of deal with all those kind of dynamics that kind of go on? Do you ever sort of think, God, I could have done with an easier life? Um, well, I think that a lot, but it really has, it has nothing to do with, uh, the, uh, the members of the band. You know, we're all friends, really. When Natalie quit, it wasn't, it wasn't a screaming match. No one was mad at each other, although she considered us to be, uh, you know, a bit boyish and, uh, you know, we, we liked our, we liked our drink and, and, you know, we liked to have, have fun and, and. And she always would, we'd be in the front lounge of the bus watching football matches and she'd be in the back lounge in the back lounge of the bus learning, um, is there a vegetarian restaurant in five different languages? Um, <laughs> uh, and that's, you know, that's what she did. And, and she sort of thought of us as sort of, you know, just loud and obnoxious and assholes, if you pardon the word. Uh, and I and she was really I think she was really glad to be away from us, but she never really it was never fighting about it, and there was no screaming or 
or wailing. And the same thing when John left, it was sort of, I'm leaving and we say, okay. And then the time was right for him to come back and it was okay. And, um, uh, now, you know, he's back in the fold and we're out having fun. We play sober now. Um, uh, we're, we're, we have fun. The audiences love us. We're selling out most of our shows. Um, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, we're lucky and we don't, and we don't try to, uh, uh, you know, abuse that luck anymore and, um, test it. Yes. Well, I know you get to an age where you sort of appreciate just waking up in the morning, but the one thing, <laughs> you know, and even if you do, you often hobble to the toilet, but, um, but that's just life. Isn't you, it? you were in my house this morning. Then, right? <laughs> Quite. Yes. But the one thing is a fan, you, you often don't really want bands reforming just for the sake of it. Cause you think, well, that's a bit naff. You know, I'm a big Smiths fan. You really don't want the Smiths reforming because yep. the memory was, it's already slightly tarnished, but the one thing you would, like to vaguely think and this definitely doesn't happen with the smiths is that the members kind of get on as well as you could imagine do you do you sort of ever have much kind of communication with natalie at all and and sort of the occasional sort of uh email or, or christmas card no not at all um we've seen her i've seen her twice in the last 25 years she moved out she moved out of jamestown which she never really liked it here it wasn't really where she grew up um, I, I've spent my entire life here, so, um, you know, I love it. And most of us have, um, no, she's, she burns her bridges. She doesn't look back. Um, I, I suspect, um, I suspect if we ever were to be, uh, uh, nominated to the rock and roll hall of fame, she would polite, uh, politely decline and not want to perform and or appear. Um, I don't I don't think she wants to have anything to do with us, really. Yes. Well, there you go. Sometimes people move on. And the other thing that, you know, just lastly, the other thing that slightly catches bands out, I say slightly, I mean 99%, um, is kind of dealing with the admin and publishing. Did you manage to sort of navigate those waters better than a lot of the indie bands in this country? Yes, we did. And actually, Natalie is, um, in, in her way, has been very, very um, uh, has been very easy to work with with that. She, in fact, um, uh, our, our, our previous publishing uh, setup, the way we divided those monies, um, were slightly unequal. They went to, uh, most of the money went to primary songwriters and then some of the money went to everyone else. And um, when we renegotiated a publishing deal, she was quite happy to uh, share all her, uh, all her monies equally mm -hmm. with everybody. Uh, in return for getting back the rights to all her songs that she wrote the music to. Um, and, and, you know, she's, she just doesn't really have any interest in sitting down and chatting or, uh, or performing with us, but she's been good to work with as far as the financial end goes. Yes. She's been very fair. She's been very fair. And, uh, and we, so of course, you know, we thank her a lot for that. Absolutely. And when you sort yeah. of look back, as, as we sometimes do, as you get a bit older and think, wow, that's amazing. Is there any particular period that you think, God, that was absolutely extraordinary and sort of feels a bit unreal? Yeah, I think that first time when we uh, when the when the plane touched down at, at Heathrow, uh, uh, that that was uh, one of the biggest goosebump times, I think, when we were going to go in this uh, we, we came over to uh, the UK and we played, uh, we played the Marquee, uh, Dingwalls, and the, 
and uh, what was it in Brixton? Um, oh, the Academy. Uh, no, it wasn't the Academy. It was. Um, uh, oh, anyway, I can't remember. You know, it's all dirty club, and uh, uh, just to sort of test the waters. And that touching down in, in the UK was just, I think, uh, a dream come true for all of us. Uh, if if that if only that had happened, I think uh, you know I could have died. I could have died a happy man. Well, absolutely. Um, and it must. Uh, and I, go ahead. And I was just going to say, and obviously, as you were sort of in uh, Jamestown, thinking, yes, we might play, be able to play a few gigs here and there to our friends and family and anybody yeah. else you can sort of drag along. But then to sort of, I suppose what I've always been interested in is, is with bands, often, you know, that's kind of going to be it. But then to play into a completely different audience and to see the audience singing your songs, it must be quite a surreal experience when it first happens. Um, it, it was at the marquee and there was a, this, this group of, of boys uh, from uh, Glasgow in the middle of the audience at the top of their lungs singing along to our songs and we had no idea how that how they knew that and they're smoking a bowl of hashish and smiling at us and uh we of course we invited them backstage because they had hashish <laughs> and we became friends and uh it was you know the marquee and you know we'd never been there and people were singing our songs yeah. and the same thing happened in a when we were making um uh, the wishing chair. For some reason, in the middle of that, we did a short little tour through Germany, and uh, you know, thanks to some of those early to in my tribe and uh, or um, um, uh, the I Secrets of the I Ching that got it did get some international release. Prior to all that, they knew some of our songs and singing along, and uh, just dumbfounding. Yeah, you know, it's hard to imagine, but. Uh, it's good fun. Every, and every day is good fun. Every gig is, uh, you know, if we can play another one and the audience stands up and applauds, then, then it was good. I always remember there was a kind of, I love my rock documentaries. I remember hearing, I think it was Hank, uh, Hank from The Shadows and some other chap who's in the band. And they said, you know, even in those la latter years, they would still look at each other on stage and give each other a big grin thinking, God, I can't believe we managed to make this our life from those uh, that very early, you know, couple of gigs that we ever played. And I guess you must have that same feeling sometimes when you look at the, each other on stage because you, you realise that two hours on stage is what makes it all perfect and think, God, we've done it, guys, we've done it. This is good. It happened to us uh, just this past Saturday. We were playing a little festival that's not far from here, opening for the Whalers, which was, you know... Uh, uh, an extraordinary thing for us because uh, we're all big fans of uh, of reggae and Bob Marley and the Whalers and all that stuff. But uh, I I had that look with our guitarist. So I looked at him, we smiled, and I went over and I said, "Here we are, buddy. <laughs> we're playing, still doing it at 62. So young, so young. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Well, now you've got Mick and Keith on stage in their 70s. You think, oh. We're not retiring, are we? We're still going. There's hope. <laughs> <laughs> and what would you say to your kind of 18-year-old self, just lastly, as you, you know, sort of, you know, or one, one bit of, one, one sort of thing that you thought, God, that would have been a good thing to have known when we just started out on this interesting trip? Well, I often say to people that um, I was having so much fun, I forgot to pay attention. 
Um, and, you know, my son, he's in his early 20s, and he, he, he works for us. He plays bass in a screamo band. Um, and uh, he's, he's out. She's trying to do it. And so he sees, he sees how we run the business and stuff. And um, uh, we, we, we trusted people a lot. We were very trusting people, and and uh, we we were lucky that we had a good manager and Peter Leake, and uh, who was a Brit that was living in the states. And, um, he he really did well for us, and he did well by us. And um, I w- I would just say you know pay closer attention to everything you know to where you're walking when you're in another country just to enjoy the things around you, you know, and uh, when you're in meetings with the business people, <laughs> pay, pay close attention to what's going on. Yes, don't have a smoke before going into the meeting. <laughs> that, that's right. Don't get stoned before you go in and talk money. <laughs> and yet so tempting. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> still. <laughs> Indeed wise words and that sadly is the last part of my interview with Steve Gustafson from the 10,000 Maniacs a huge thank you for giving me the time for that interview uh, this has been David Eastall the C86 show if you want to contact me um, I hope I'm not saying I'm too desperate you can via Facebook Twitter just go to at C86 show I will be there and it's always a delight as long as it's kind of positive and groovy otherwise as I often say don't bother um, this is going to be Eden have a great week.